Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 Welcome to Tell Me the Story with Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us for a weekly study of the Bible as we read verse by verse with the original context and languages at the forefront, illuminating the stories at hand. This week we will be continuing our recently infrequent chapter-by-chapter Bible study. We're picking up today in chapter 42 of Genesis, where we will soon hear about Joseph's hungry brothers. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So just within this opening passage, we have several clues that suggest a very intelligent recapitulation of themes, biblical themes, surrounding Jacob slash Israel, as per the author's clever usurping of the Israeli or Hebrew people as a quote-unquote special people. I think it's important to point these things out so that we can peel back the layers of the text and get down to the point. It is not a historical recounting. It is not the written record of oral tradition dating back to the historical figures written about in the text. It is a story, and every story has a message, especially stories of this era. Anyways, in this first passage, we have a little bit of the Jacob slash Israel name interplay. The first verse tells us that Jacob heard of the food in Egypt. In a somewhat sarcastic chastisement, Jacob commands his sons to go and get some of this food. But alas, Jacob withholds his new favorite son from going and potentially befalling any harm. This is ironic because Jacob's previous favorite, Joseph, did succumb to harm by his own brothers, but was protected by God. It's especially ironic because the harm came from within Jacob's own house, not the unpredictable scary foreigners that Jacob seems to be not so fond of. But I digress. The next two interesting details in the text are found in verse 5, where we have a repetitive statement of clarity. First, the sons are called sons of Israel. Why? Well, that is more clear in a moment. The rest of the verse states that the sons of Israel came to Egypt to buy grain. It could have stopped there, but it clarifies, and this is more obvious in the original Hebrew, opposed to our ESV, but it clarifies that they came to buy grain among the others who came because of the famine. The text calls them the sons of Israel and includes the extensive detail about the others who came due to the famine because the text is very subtly reminding the audience that Israel is not special among the nations and are totally helpless like everyone else. They have been the central characters throughout the narrative, but when it comes down to it, when God causes a famine, Israel gets no special treatment. God uses Egypt to feed the nations, and Israel must come crawling, begging for food just like every other nation. Joseph was preserved for the sake of God's teaching, but he has received no special treatment either. Joseph has the position he has for that purpose alone, and please listen to last week's episode to hear that connection to the storing up of seed and its connection to the Toledot and God's teaching. 
Right, and part of the power of that connection is that it said that the abundant grain was as the sand of the sea, which is an obvious parallel to the enlargement of Abraham's family and the divine promise given to him and his family. What's interesting about Genesis is just how decentralized everything is. There's no mention of a temple, no mention of Jerusalem, and no mention of any location that is holier than the other. All we have is the land of Canaan, which is a desert wasteland spanning from one major urban center, that being Egypt, and another major urban center, that being Mesopotamia. But even Canaan itself is not a holy place, as God's blessings are bestowed upon those who do his will, no matter where they are. This is the significant error made by the Judean elite during Paul's time. They completely ignored and did the opposite of the biblical teaching by placing emphasis on the city of David, the Davidic monarchy, and Jewish identity marked by circumcision. The thesis of the New Testament authors is, is essentially to correct the abuses of their associate Pharisees and bring them back to what had been vital to the message of the Old Testament authors before them. Genesis makes it very clear. None among the nations are special, but there just happens to be a special God who is not like the other gods who show their glory by massive statues and ornate temples. This God is unseen, moves unhindered and unpredictably like the wind, and is only heard when his words are read aloud. We must continue to come back to this point as we progress in the story. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. He said to them, you are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them together in custody for three days. Here we see the sons of Israel finding themselves at the mercy of the brother they had attempted to destroy. Because of their iniquity, they have been famished in their homeland and are now at the mercy of a foreign power. This is important because the very same thing will occur several times throughout Scripture. We've discussed at length that Joseph is characterized in a very similar manner as that of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Likewise, he is the messianic figure of the book of Genesis, just as the messianic figure of the broader Old Testament is a king who is a complete outsider. And it ends up in the story being Cyrus the Persian. In fact, it is at the mercy of Cyrus towards the Israelites, which closes the third and final section of the Old Testament. Keep in mind that in the original Hebrew canon, Second Chronicles is the final book of the Hebrew Bible. So just to be clear, Joseph in the Torah, as the governor of Egypt, is functioning very much like Cyrus in the prophets and the writings. 
While Cyrus is an outsider from the people of Israel, Joseph appears to them as such. His brothers do not recognize him, and he speaks to them as if he doesn't know them either. We learn later that there was an interpreter between them, so he even acts as if he doesn't speak their language. So functionally speaking, Joseph is an Egyptian, and he is a foreigner among his own people. But the irony is that God's supposed people are now reliant not on God's mercy to themselves and their own people, but through an outsider who shares with them the mercy of the God they should have been serving. And that's the dig with Cyrus being the Messiah in the Old Testament. And that is the dig with Joseph being the Messiah here. Everybody expects a homegrown King David, but such a king is never to be found because the iniquity comes from inside the group, not outside. The cancer began in Jacob when he followed the ways of the Nakash, and it spread to his murderous children. For their salvation, it takes the humiliation of having their God save them via a foreign agent, which is exactly what we see happening here. Yeah, very well said. I think there are a couple of interesting little Hebrew details to point out as well before we move on, though. First is that in verse 6, where it says Joseph was the governor over the land, I was expecting the word for govern to be the word mashal or another word I am familiar with, but it is not. It is the word shalit, and this is the first occurrence of that word in the Old Testament. What is especially interesting is that this word is similar to Mashal in that the second two letters of Mashal are the first two letters of Shalat. So although your Hebrew dictionary and lexicon may not make a connection between these two words, I can't help but see one considering how diverse and moldable ancient Semitic languages were, and that the authors seem to have been aware of many of them. Shalat, opposed to Mashal, means more so to be the master of something, or even more specifically, to have been given mastery over something, much like how Joseph was given control over essentially everything in Egypt. The second interesting detail comes in the next verse where it says Joseph recognized his brothers, but treated them like strangers and spoke, quote-unquote, roughly to them. That word is the word kase, which means hard, severe, or harsh, and is interesting in its own right as it seems connected to one of the Hebrew words for sheep, say, but that could just be me looking for more connections between adversity and the ideas of shepherdism. But regardless, the word is used here to illustrate that Joseph is speaking harshly to his brothers, and that word choice clues us into his motivations in this scene. He isn't just treating them like strangers, but he is treating them harshly. Moreover, in the next couple of verses, it is made clear that Joseph was recalling his dreams from back before they sold him into slavery, and it becomes pretty obvious that Joseph is realizing the meaning of those dreams from his youth, and the fact that they are being realized. Joseph also remembers what kind of people his brothers are, so he is dealing with them harshly. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. 
Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? At the end of this section, we see that Joseph bestows mercy on his brothers by not only giving them grain, but effectively giving it to them for free. He orders that their money be replaced in their sacks along with the grain. Even this gesture of mercy appears to be bad news when the brothers realize this. They believe that God is punishing them due to this seemingly troublesome situation, but actually the opposite is happening. Joseph has no reason to have mercy upon his brothers, who apparently were only guilty when the danger appeared to be coming towards them. But that's how the biblical system works. It goes against our natural impulse for revenge. It is also interesting that the brother he chooses to hold for ransom is Simeon, who is the most violent and vengeful of the group. Simeon in Hebrew comes from Shema Oni, which means he has heard my suffering. It is deeply prophetic, as we will later see in the book of Exodus, when God constantly says that he hears Shema, the suffering of his people. It is, of course, from the same root as Ishmael, the son of the mistreated Egyptian slave. Simeon, who represents the violence of the Israelites, is not harmed, but is the one who has to remain in the bondage of Egypt until he is finally rescued by God through his merciful brother. I also think it's telling that the sons of Jacob are bickering in the face of their brother Joseph. I'm sure after all these years he looks a bit different and they don't recognize him, but clearly their judgment is clouded and they can't simply look into Joseph's face and see him for who he is. One, their brother, and two, a man trying to help them. It's almost a slight retelling of the time that they essentially killed him and sold him into slavery, just got rid of him out of the family, because back then they were bickering with one another about what to do with him and eventually decide to get rid of him. All the meanwhile, they can't simply look the scared boy in the face and acknowledge what they're doing. Even in the next chapter, they admit that the man interrogated them with much precision. There's a clue for them to realize who he is. For such beguiling sons of Jacob, they can't see what seems to be so obvious. They bicker at one another, and then when they're sent away, as Blaise said, they see the sign of mercy acted by Joseph in allowing them to keep their money as a bad omen, because they're worried that perhaps they took the money by accident and won't be able to return for food, which is essentially all they really care about. The text goes on to say, When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. 
If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. There are many things to touch on this last section, but one of the most striking is how each of the characters are fighting for some form of self-preservation. For his entire story arc, Jacob has been attempting to secure his own regal identity and has followed in his grandfather's footsteps in attempting to strategize his own dynasty. On the other hand, it is also understandable that Jacob is protective over his sons. We see here that while it is primarily the children of Rachel that he is most concerned with, this last passage still displays mourning for Simeon, but the loss of Benjamin, the son of his right hand, is just too much to bear. It would be as if losing everything he has ever built for himself. To add a layer of complexity, Reuben is willing to have his own children put to death for what? Some bread in Egypt? That's ultimately what's at stake here. It all goes back to when Abram was first called out of the comfortable urban environment in Mesopotamia. If you read closely in Genesis 12, Abram goes anywhere but the direction that God told him to go into and directly in the land of Canaan. He first camps out in Haran, and then when he gets hungry, he goes down to Egypt and causes trouble. It's totally a lack of faith, pure and simple. That's the literary message being conveyed here. Jacob's sinful actions trickle down to his sons who eventually cause his favorite son Joseph to be enslaved in Egypt. But Joseph has faith and brings forth blessings not only to himself, but to Egypt. I think to sum it up in the most modern way, it's just a proper mess. Jacob is birthed sons who he cannot even trust because he is right. The two times they have had to take care of one another, they end up coming back home with one of the brothers missing. The first time, of course, was Joseph, when they effectively killed him and cast him out of the house, and then Simeon, who we just heard about. Jacob cannot trust his own sons because they are spitting images of him, their father, one who himself could not be trusted when he was their age. And now in his older age, when he is weaker and displays less control over his environment as before, he is very conservative with his resources because he is afraid to lose what little he has left in the little amount of time he has left on earth. That is ultimately the story of scripture, humans taking things that don't belong to them and killing their brother in the process. It is the same story over and over again in scripture, and it is the story we live every single day in our own lives. It is these carefully crafted stories that call us out of that pattern of living because we are all subject to it. We are all slaves to greed. Scripture is what calls us to submit to God and do the one thing he is concerned with, show mercy, which flies in the face of a greedy lifestyle. May we all commit this to our hearts through the constant reminders of Scripture and by its recitation. Peace be with you. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.